This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, it just doesn't seem possible that a year has gone by since we aired our last program. Oh, wait, actually... The truth of the matter is, we last aired a program a week ago. It just seems like a year has gone by. There have been a lot of interesting conversations since we were last before you, dear listener. I hope to relate at least a couple of those as we go along. The first I should cite is someone who was lamenting the current state of what is going on in the United States of America regarding COVID-19 and our lack of response to it, at which point she said, I wish I could just do something about it. I said, well, that's what Ms. Ramon and I are trying to do with this radio program. She said, well, keep it up. I mean, someone's got to do something. Fortunately, a lot of people are doing something, and one can go out and find good data that outlines in detail the fix that we're in. Something else we're determined to go over today. But honestly, I look back to having put last week's show to bed. The recording was finished. Mr. McMillan now had it to do his editing which, as he likes to point out, saves the show every week. As the show was off and, from my standpoint, post-production, I went to the web and was flabbergasted by the news items before me, starting with this headline. Former GOP presidential candidate Herman Cain dies after battle with coronavirus. It was noted that Cain is certainly among the highest-profile public figures in the United States to have died from COVID-19. And what struck me as extremely relevant about this news story was the fact that Cain had attended Trump's rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, less than two weeks before receiving his diagnosis of having COVID. Cain was seen at the rally without a mask, not practicing social distancing, despite the fact that he was a cancer survivor with a pre-existing condition, making it very dangerous for him to act like that. But act like that he did, and got COVID, and died. Now, the governor of Oklahoma also happened to be at that same rally in Tulsa, and he also subsequently got COVID. He has not died. And he has tried to claim that, well, it's not sure whether he got it at the rally or not, because because of the timing, it seemed to have been several weeks went by. Well, maybe, maybe not. There doesn't seem to be a hell of a lot of doubt about Herman Cain. And the next headline I bump into, before last week's show even aired, was this. Trump floats delaying election, despite lack of authority to do so. Noted CNN in his tweet on Thursday morning, that would be Thursday the 30th, coming 96 days before the election and minutes after the federal government reported the worst economic contraction in recorded history, Trump offered the suggestion because he claimed without evidence the contest will be flawed. To quote from the tweet, With universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the U.S. Delay the election until people can properly secure and safely vote? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Now, some people have had some fun with this exploring what the difference is between mail-in voting and absentee voting. I don't think my friend Benden will mind if I quote from the meme she was sending around recently, 
which was, you may be wondering what's the difference exactly between absentee ballots, a great way to vote, and mail-in voting. Shouldn't be allowed. Both Trump's opinions, of course. Wonder no longer. An absentee ballot is sent in the mail, whereas a mail-in vote is mailed in. Sending ballots in the mail is famously secure, but mailing in votes is ripe for all kinds of fraud and confusion. An absentee ballot is filled out in pen or pencil, whereas a mail-in vote is filled in with ink or graphite. An absentee ballot is placed in an envelope, whereas a mail-in vote is enclosed in an envelope. An absentee ballot must be signed, whereas a mail-in vote requires a signature. On an absentee ballot, a voter marks their preferred candidates, but on a mail-in vote, the voter fills in the ballot to indicate the candidate of their choice. And in summary, an absentee ballot is cast by a Republican, whereas a mail-in vote is sent in by a Democrat. The presidential campaign tried to back off and saying the president was just offering a query. Somewhat surprisingly on this one, Trump's allies appear to have abandoned him completely. Mitch McConnell has said the election date is cast in stone. Said Senator Lindsey Graham, I don't think that's a particularly good idea. I love this one. Said, said Senator John Thune, who's the Senate whip. I think that's probably a statement that gets some press attention, but I doubt it gets any serious traction. Yeah, as if the press was proposing they do it. But a guy who really went ballistic over this suggestion of postponing our national election, something which has never happened, since 1789. Well, Stephen Calabrese, the co-founder of the Federalist Society and professor at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law, and a guy who up till now has been pretty happy with the fact that when the Federalist Society has handed Donald Trump two suggested appointees for the Supreme Court, he got them both on the bench. And by the way, this is not a guy whose law opinions we necessarily are in sync with. But here's what he had to say. I voted Republican in every presidential election since 1980, including voting for Donald Trump. I wrote op-eds and law review articles protesting what I believe was an unconstitutional investigation by Robert Mueller. I also wrote an op-ed opposing President Trump's impeachment. But I'm frankly appalled by the president's recent tweet seeking to postpone the November election. Until recently, I had taken as political hyperbole the Democrats' assertion that President Trump is a fascist. But this latest tweet is fascistic and is itself grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again by the House of Representatives and his removal of office by the Senate. So, Professor Calabrese, co-founder of the Federalist Society, has gone from writing an op-ed opposing President Trump's impeachment to proposing that he be re-impeached. Anyway, it's worth reading a little bit more of what he had to say. The nation has faced grave challenges before, just as it does today with the spread of the coronavirus. But it has never canceled or delayed a presidential election. Not in 1864, when President Lincoln was expected to lose and the South looked like it might defeat the North. Not in 1932, at the the depths of the Great Depression. Not in 1944, during World War II. So we certainly should not even consider canceling this fall's election because of the president's concern about mail-in voting. He closed by saying President Trump needs to be told by every Republican in Congress that he cannot postpone the federal election. Doing so would be illegal, unconstitutional, and without precedent in American history. Anyone who says otherwise should never be elected to Congress again. Well, we stand with him on that legal opinion. Just when I was starting to despair 
that there were no Republicans out there willing to say Trump is killing people due to his inaction regarding the virus and is possessed of numerous shortcomings rendering him unfit to be president. Had an illuminating conversation with a former colleague who's still in the trenches working out in the Central Valley. He's a pretty good friend, although he's on the conservative side of the street, and I, and I believe a Republican. He's a smart guy. He's a good doc. And he's the sort of fellow I like to go out to the shooting range with when on those occasions when I go to the shooting range, which was not very often. But we got to talking about what things were like out in the Central Valley, and he said things were bad. He was diagnosing about four COVID patients a day. He made mention of the teenager, I believe the 17-year-old down in Fresno, who did have pre-existing conditions, but did die at age 17 of COVID. And he commented that he hoped Trump got it and said he thought that the way Trump was handling this whole thing was simply an outrage. He pointed me to the Lincoln Project, specifically citing a new pace they have called Morning in America, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, which is a play off of the Ronald Reagan famous ad in 1984 titled It's Morning in America. Apparently, the Lincoln Project managed to get this one on Fox News, and it contrasted scenes of post-COVID devastation with that hopeful bits of Americana from Ronald Reagan's original ad. I looked it up and found one piece that they did on April 10th that was amazingly on the money as regards the inadequacy of the COVID response by Trump. What's curious about this is that it apparently is getting under the president's skin. One ad they did mocked. Trump's halting walk down a ramp at West Point. This so annoyed Trump that at his Tulsa rally, he ranted about the ramp video for about 15 minutes. We talked about this on the show some weeks back where he claimed that he, uh, he ran the last 10 steps, something which was not captured by the video of his walk down the ramp. I was intrigued to, to see his rebuttal at Tulsa rally where he claimed that the video cut out before he ran those final 10 steps. Mr. Mellon says he thinks he saw him do a couple of cartwheels while he was going down the ramp, but he's not quite sure. Anyway, this correspondent is enormously, I guess you'd say, relieved to see that there are Republicans out there crafting ads designed to persuade other Republicans and other centrist independents to abandon Trump by highlighting his failures, lies, and insecurities. And when it comes to slapping a hit piece like this together... (laughs) Joanna Weiss wrote in Politico.com, there's no doubt about it, Republicans are better at this than Democrats. They did put out one ad entitled 100,000 Dead, which starts with a shot of seven white body bags and Trump saying the nation's COVID-19 caseload will soon be close to zero. Another image of rows of body bags follows with a faint sound of wind whistling as if through a graveyard. Said David Zerwick in the Baltimore Sun, this is what it takes to beat Trump. The Michelle Obama slogan, when they go low, we go high, sounds nice, but it won't get the job done. And it is at this point in time we should go back to that, uh, that article we referred to at the end of last week's program. The title, this came from the Washington Post, Hold and Ignored, piece by Joel Achenbach. The article starts off noting that Isabel Papadimitru was a respiratory therapist in Dallas. She was 64. She'd been treating a surge of patients as the Texas economy reopened. She developed coronavirus symptoms on June 27th, tested positive two days later, and died the morning of the 4th of July. Her daughter's comments on this was that she had seen her country fail to control the virus. 
She had seen Texas ease restrictions, even as case counts and hospitalizations soared. She'd seen fellow citizens refuse to wear a mask or engage in social distancing. Said the daughter, I feel like her death was 100% preventable. I'm angry at the Trump administration. I'm angry with the state of our politics. I'm angry at the people who even now refuse to wear masks. Noted the article, six months after the coronavirus appeared in America, the nation has failed spectacularly to contain it. Many countries have rigorously driven infection rates nearly to zero. In the United States, coronavirus transmission is out of control. The national response is fragmented, shot through with political rancor and culture war divisiveness. Testing shortcomings that revealed themselves in March have become acute in July, with week-long waits for results leaving the country blind to real-time virus spread and rendering contact tracing nearly irrelevant. How the world's richest country got into this dismal situation is a complicated tale that exposes the flaws and fissures in a nation long proud of its ability to meet cataclysmic changes. If there was a mistake to be made in this pandemic, the U.S. has made it. The single biggest miscalculation was rushing to reopen the economy while the virus was still spreading at high rates through much of the country. That's according to experts. The only way to reopen safely, epidemiologists said, as far back as early April, was to crush the curve, to drive down the rate of viral transmission to the point where new infections were few and far between. Many countries did that. They've managed to avoid the kind of dramatic viral resurgence that is happening in the U.S. Spain, Italy, Germany, and France, all devastated by the virus months ago, drove coronavirus cases and deaths to relatively low levels. And in Asia, the picture is radically different than it is here in America. In Taiwan, baseball fans sit in the stands and watch their teams. Japan has had fewer than 1,000 deaths from COVID-19. South Korea, fewer than 300. Vietnam has recorded no deaths, although I think that's changed in the last week. They've now had one or two. The article notes the U.S.'s mishandling of the pandemic has defied most experts' predictions. In October, not long before the novel coronavirus began sickening people, a comprehensive review ranked the pandemic preparedness of 195 countries. The project, called the Global Health Security Index, led by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Nuclear Threat Initiative, assigned scores to countries as a way to warn them of the rising threat of infectious disease outbreaks. With a score of 83 out of 100, the U.S. ranked number one. But, notes the article, the death rate in the U.S. looks like that of countries with vastly lower wealth and lower healthcare resources and less technological infrastructure. So how did the nation get caught so flat-footed? Beth Cameron, who helped lead the project for the Nuclear Threat Initiative, said, by not really trying. The federal government punted the viral response to the states, counties, and cities, said Cameron, who was Senior Director of Global Health Security and Biodefense on the White House National Security Council under Barack Obama. I just never expected, she said, that we would have such a lack of federal leadership, and it's been deliberate. In a national emergency that is a pandemic spreading between states, federal leadership is essential. And if there was any doubts about that, we ran the experiment from March to April, and until now, it failed. I'm not going to read the entire piece, but it's got a few more zingers I think are worthy of quotation. 
Note Joel Achenbach, even before the pandemic hit, local public health agencies had been devastated by years of staffing and budget cuts. They had lost almost a quarter of their overall workforce since 2008, a cut of almost 60,000 workers, according to National Associations of Health Officials. The agency's main source of federal funding, the Center for Disease Control's Emergency Preparedness Budget, has been cut 30% since 2003. The article goes on to note that the United States, experts say, is approaching a tipping point at which its public health systems could become so overwhelmed that they begin to collapse. Already, coronavirus test results take so long to come back that they are almost useless for anything except as a historical record. The delays have a cascading effect. Contact tracing is rendered ineffectual. Containing the virus by isolation becomes impossible. And as hospitals fill, the virus fatality rate could inch upward because of overtaxed ICU nurses and doctors struggling to care for so many. This is what people predicted last February for what was going to happen in Italy, and that's exactly what happened. This is what people predicted in March was going to happen in New York, and that's exactly what happened. Lots of people predicted, us among them, that this is going to happen in the rest of the United States if we opened up prematurely, and now it too is happening. And notes the article, this crisis has been sucked inexorably into the vortex of political polarization. Donald Trump repeatedly downplayed the viral threat. In late February, he said, you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple days, it's going to be down to close to zero. On Twitter, he cheered on citizen protests of shutdowns that had been ordered by Democratic governors. He did not even wear a mask in public until July 11th. Many Americans still believe the pandemic has been exaggerated or even fabricated by scientists and the mainstream news media. The rejection of scientific expertise has flowered into a conspiracy theory holding that the experts are lying as part of a political agenda. The most outrageous lies are the ones about COVID-19. Everyone's lying. The CDC, media, Democrats, our doctors, not all but most, that we are told to trust. That was according to former Wheel of Fortune game show host Chuck Woolery. He tweeted that on July 12th. And, of course, naturally, Donald Trump retweeted it the same day. But a few days later, Woolery revealed that his son was sick with the virus and he has since taken down his Twitter account. Now, keep in mind that that article is about a couple weeks old. At any point from the time that appeared in print till now, it would be possible that the president might see the error of his ways and change. And it seems clear that the government's top experts are now saying the pandemic is entering a new phase as it invades America's rural heartland. On August 3rd, Dr. Deborah Burks acknowledged America's new grim reality in this battle against the pandemic which earned her Donald Trump's ire. Trump tweeted that Burks had taken the bait after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had criticized her for offering what the California Democrat considered rosy and misleading assessments. This is because Burks had delivered a series of stunning warnings on CNN's state of power five months into a pandemic that the president once said posed no threat to Americans, though it's now killed 150,000 of us. Yes, Burks irked the president by saying what we are seeing today is different from March and April, and it's extraordinarily widespread. It's into the rural as equal urban areas. She suggested that some Americans in multi-generational families should start wearing masks in their home and assume that they already have the disease. She did not reject a warning by former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb that there could be 300,000 deaths by the end of the year. 
saying simply, anything's possible. On the last day in July, Dr. Anthony Fauci told a House committee it was unclear how long the crisis would last. Meanwhile, the CDC told Americans to brace for an average of 1,000 deaths a day for the next 30 days. And here's the punchline to all of this, as seen by Stephen Collinson writing for CNN. Despite the worsening crisis, there is no sign of a new administration approach or evidence of an effort to set up the massive testing and tracing nationwide program that experts say is needed to finally get a handle on the crisis. By the way, Burks contradicted the president's call for schools to open everywhere, saying, where there is a high caseload and active community spread, where people shouldn't go to bars or have house parties, they should distance learn at this moment so we can get this epidemic under control. Now, of course, the president decided that uh, on Monday, now, of course, the president decided as all this was going on, I guess it was on the 3rd of August, he needs to go before the public and explain what's really going on here. And it should be noted that a substantial portion of the nation looks to the president to supply them with accurate news. According to NBC, the level of trust for Donald Trump's statements has increased 47% in recent months among Republicans. Of course, among Democrats, it has decreased 91%. Meanwhile, Anthony Fauci has seen the net trust among Democrats rise 69%. The CDC figure was 60%. The corresponding numbers for Republicans, for Fauci, negative 21%. For the CDC, negative 14%. No, they rely on Donald J. Trump. So to reach that segment of the population that relies upon what he has to say, here's what he had to say. Jonathan Swan for Axios approached the president, you know, I think in a, in a sensible way, by, by buttering him up at first, by saying, I've gone to your rallies, I've talked to your people, they love you, they listen to you, they listen to every word you say, they hang on your every word. And so, when they hear you say, everything's under control, don't worry about wearing masks, I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, at which point Trump butted in to say, well, what's your definition of control? I think it's under control. Swan said, how? A thousand Americans are dying a day, said Trump. They're dying, that's true, and it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. Writing about this in The Guardian, John Crace said, Trump's stream of consciousness, actually stream of subconsciousness, becomes a torrent in a car crash interview said Mr. Crace, cueing a long rant from Trump about how there'd been nothing like this since the 1917 pandemic, actually it was 1918, how he wouldn't forget that China had brought the virus to the U.S., and of course it also arrived from Europe, and how there were 12,000 people at his rally in Tulsa, not the 6,000 that the fake news media had reported. All the more people to hear his positive message that the virus was near enough under control and that face masks were for lefty wimps. You know, and here's the part of the interview I think I like the best, even more than it is what it is. Said Trump to Swan, we've tested more people than anyone had thought of. 60 million. There's some people who are saying we've tested too much. Who? Swan asked reasonably. Read the manuals. Read the books. What books? Trump ignored that question, and Swan didn't press him for an answer. Said John Crace, the lie spoke for itself. No scientist has yet advocated less testing as a solution, and still less has anyone written a book about it. Noted John Crace, things became even more surreal. First, Trump insisted that children with runny noses were now testing positive, and that only reason the U.S. was showing more cases was because of its level of testing. 
Brilliant, he said. Obviously, the way to beat the virus is to do no tests whatsoever. That way, no one would ever die of it. And just to round this out, (laughs) Trump said, when I took over, we didn't have a test. Swan served up the logic that the reason there was no test a year or so ago was because the virus did not yet exist. And then apparently Donald Trump tried to do some statistical analysis during the interview. He started claiming that the U.S. was doing well because of the percentage of deaths as a proportion of cases. Swan said, you're doing death as a proportion of cases? I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Trump argued, you can't do that. You have to go by the cases, the cases of death. Swan later added, it's surely a relevant statistic to say if the U.S. has X population and X population of deaths of that population versus, say, South Korea. Trump replied, no, because you have to go by the cases. And of course, to the contrary, officials at the White House Coronavirus Task Force have been warning that the pandemic is worsening in the U.S., as we just talked about. Now, as reported on this program and elsewhere, just about everywhere, the president has admitted that he has instructed the United States to slow down testing of the virus because it makes us look bad. And apparently, in this case, according to GQ, the person that convinced Trump last March that coronavirus testing was a bad idea was his numbskull son-in-law, the guy who was running a parallel coronavirus response team to that of Vice President Mike Pence. Now, the nice thing about the Internet is you can go onto it and pull up a story that's contemporaneous from a couple months ago and see what, for example, Jared Kushner was saying on, let's see, April 29th. And I think the headline from Forbes says it all. Jared Kushner says, we have all the testing we need, counter to health expert estimates. Apparently, Kushner told Fox News, I'm very confident we have all the testing we need to start opening the country, saying governors have excess capacity. Kushner argued in April the media focused on lagging indicators and that the eternal lockdown crowd can make jokes on late night television. But the reality is the data is on our side. By the way, this influential presidential son-in-law said two weeks later that there was uncertainty about whether the presidential election would happen in November as scheduled because of the coronavirus pandemic. And God bless Vanity Fair, who's done some great investigative journalism over the years for its piece, looking into why it was Jared Kushner was thinking the way he was thinking. The Vanity Fair article, which I have not yet read, takes an exhaustive look at decisions made and actions taken by the secretive task force led by Kushner that was charged with implementing an aggressive, coordinated national COVID-19 response, including a federal testing regime that would help stem the spread of the virus. What the investigation uncovered, according to reporter Catherine Ebon, was an ultimately aborted plan for a far-reaching national strategy and a deliberative process that began not with public health experts, but with bankers and billionaires. After talking to members of Kushner's team, reporter Ebon noted that most troubling of all, perhaps, were the feelings expressed back then that because the virus had hit blue states hardest, a national plan was unnecessary and would not make sense politically. Said the expert, the political folks believed that because it was going to be relocated to Democratic states, that they could blame those governors and that it would be an effective political strategy. And when you know it, on April 27th, Trump stepped to the podium at the Rose Garden, flanked by members of the Coronavirus Task Force, 
and leaders of America's big commercial testing laboratories, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, and finally announced a testing plan. It bore almost no resemblance to the one that had been forged in late March and shifted the problem of diagnostic testing almost entirely to the individual states. Believe you me, this Vanity Fair piece needs to be followed up on. A credible case is being made that our national disaster of non-testing is related to the fact that political considerations, i.e. that this is going to kill Democrats, not Republicans, with the bonus that they could also then blame the governors when things went south. Well, my God, isn't that just hair-raising stuff? I think we desperately need to take a break at exactly this moment. Let us do so. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in the second segment, so don't go away. Love's the only engine 